Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from 1 Peter 5, 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you, to all of you who are in Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do for us, and that is make truths be illumined to our minds, our wandering minds, our, our darkened minds, our unbelieving minds, and, and that it would connect these truths to our souls, our hearts in such a way that we, we love them and delight in them. And Father, ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, for your glory. Amen and amen. If you're not already at First Peter chapter 5, please go there. We'll be verses 12 to the end of First Peter. Uh, a couple closing remarks here with First Peter. Peter, preaching Peter rather, has, has really been a treat. Um, for me personally, this is my third time teaching all the way through the book of First Peter. Um, one time preaching, the other time in a more of a Bible study setting. But Peter has been delightful. The Word of God, I think we've seen, is faithful and true. That the Word of God never leaves people neutral. The Word of God either hardens or softens. We, we don't ever come to the text and just think we leave in a, in a state of neutrality, but it, it pricks our hearts in one direction or the other. And the Word of God, by its grace, God's work speaks right to our situations. It speaks right into our lives, whether it's doubt or suffering or into specific sins. The Word of God, by the power of the Spirit, has a way of speaking right to us where we're at. As I reflected this week on First Peter, First Peter has, has I want to use this term, has armored this church. I don't usually use mountain biking analogies, but uh, so I'm going to use one this morning, though. Uh, if you don't know, I, I like to mountain bike. Um, says the scar on my collarbone. In mountain biking, you, you're often, not, not me as a rider, but trails are often being built, and by nature of the game, these trails are built in the hills and Mountains, you know, it depends on whether you live in Ohio or somewhere like North Carolina. Um, sometimes they just build them on flat spots, but I'm not talking about those places. The ones that are on the hills wash out. The, the trail crumbling is very common. So what trail builders do is they add rocks to the sides and rocks in the low spots to armor up the trail. To keep the tread surface steady and solid keep it rideable, usable, to help the rain run off the trails when necessary. That's what First Peter has done for refuge. Has built rocks up to keep us steady, to keep our souls steady, to keep our hands steady. First Peter, whether we realize it or not, 
your soul has either been hardened or softened. It either has been hardened towards sin or in sin, or it has armored you with the truth. And how has it done that specifically? And this is going to get us to kind of my summary statement for this morning. That Peter has done this. He has armored his church by helping us understand this key thing. What true grace is. What true grace is. Peter's goal has been this. In the midst of uncertainty, helping us know what true grace is. To commend and confirm to us the true grace of God. See, Peter, if you know, study from, from the uh, Gospels, Peter himself was a witness to the true grace of God. He was an apostle who witnessed God's grace at work in his son, Jesus. To reflect back here on the beginning couple verses, you can hear echoes of this true grace of God in the opening words from Peter for this epistle. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? He's, he's acknowledging and testifying to his witness of Jesus. And then he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see, Peter, even at the very beginning here in this epistle, has recognized the human plight. I might summarize it for you this morning. That God created us to live with Him, in harmony, in unity, in righteousness, in holiness. But we turned away from Him in pride, saying, we can discern for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And at that point, God had two broad options, if you will. He could leave us to death and destruction and eternal separation from the God who loves us. That was option one. Option two is that He might extend grace to us. And we know that that grace, as Peter has said here at the very beginning, has come to us in the form of the gospel of the glorious, as Genesis would refer to uh, Jesus, as the serpent crusher. Because instead of saying, I can discern for myself what is right and wrong, in rejection of God, Jesus submitted to God's definition of right and wrong. And then Jesus took our death, the death that we deserved, and Jesus took our destruction, Jesus took our separation from God. He took all of those things. It is the grace that God chose to extend to us. And so what Peter wants us to know from this entire epistle and in this moment is what true grace is. And as we work through this, it's, it's, it's helpful for us to also recognize first, though, that just like Adam and Eve, we cannot discern for ourselves on our own what true grace is. We can't do that apart from God. We couldn't do that in initial salvation. 
and justification, and we can't do that today or tomorrow apart from God. We all succumb to what I want to call for the moment counterfeit gospels of grace. We all succumb to counterfeit gospels of grace. The opening words by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. We're going to zero in there for the next while. As we think about what this is in the phrase, this is the true grace of God, we've got to first think about what it is not. But to set that up, think about it this way. Whatever we look to for salvation, for hope, for redemption, that is what we believe to be true grace. So whatever you look to in the moment, that's what you believe to be true grace. That's where my hope is. So the question is, is what gospel of grace do you preach to yourself regularly? Maybe even right now. Where is your security at, your hope at right now? Where are you basing your existence at right now? Some potential options, just broad strokes here. Could be the gospel of an easy life. I just want to avoid these hard things. No suffering. Maybe it's the gospel of control. Got to tie up every loose end. Got to make sure that my life looks like a pretty bow. Could be the gospel of the intellect. I've got to understand everything. I want to, as we think about this, I want to show you what we're all up against in this conversation. Peter is saying, this is true grace. But we all want to define for ourselves the word this. So the question is, is how do you define this? This is true grace. Now we all can mentally ascend to the idea, and all of us would say, oh, of course, that's Jesus Christ, the gospel, so on and so forth. But is that what you reach for in that moment of despair? Or is that what you reach for when you're patting yourself on the back? What do you reach for? What is the this in the phrase, this is the true grace of God. We might say things like, if I just had blank, if I just had the right amount of finances, if I just had the right job, if I just had the right text message from that friend, if I just had the perfect church community, if I just had the most ideal responses from my leaders, how do you find, define this In the phrase, this is the true grace of God. What it boils down to this is that in pride, we believe we can define for ourselves the gospel of grace. Our own gospel of grace. Now here's the deal though, to to take it up a notch. It's not that we simply think we can look at the world and determine what is right and wrong, but we want to be God over what is right and what is wrong. We want to be God over these things. And so, 
we believe we can and should define what is gracious. And then oftentimes, we hold others to that same definition of grace. And then, we hold God to that same definition of grace. Saying to others and to God, if you and I are going to be right, meaning no relational barriers between us, then you have to meet my gospel of grace. Let me give you a couple examples of how we might do this on the horizontal level. Okay, First example is this. Tone of voice. When is the tone of communication gracious or ungracious? By what standard? Let's listen to Job. Let's listen to Job when he rebukes his wife. Okay? Job 2, 9 through 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job, or but he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And go check your Bibles. Don't take my word for it. The next phrase is key. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job, while his wife is suffering some of the greatest trauma ever, Job says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And the scriptures say, Job's speech was not sin. So again, I ask the question, by what standard is something gracious and something not? It can't just be, well, I feel this is gracious. Because I imagine in this moment, likely... Just speculating, his wife did not feel as though Job was being very gracious with him or with her. But the scriptures say that he did not sin with his lips. Another example it's easy for us in our time of need, legitimate need, it's easy for us to, in that time to say to others, to expect others to meet us or respond to us in certain ways in which we define grace. You need to give me a phone call. I need scriptures. I don't need scriptures. Just listen. Don't forget to give me a plan. I don't want your plan. Just cry with me. I mean, what's acceptable? By what standard is it gracious? Now, this, this has application in the body of Christ, back and forth between members, going from members to leaders. It's got with your kids, with your spouses, with your friends, and ultimately with God. Where is the standard? I would take you to an example with Jesus. Mark 4, 37 through 40. You heard this referenced a few weeks ago. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, 
Jesus that is, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, you do not care that, or do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So here's my question. Was Jesus gracious or not gracious in the way he responded? I mean, the disciples in this moment didn't feel cared for. Did Jesus sin? Was Jesus gracious or was he not gracious? Does Jesus need to repent or say, I'm sorry to the disciples? You know, Jesus, we're not relationally good because you didn't meet our expectations of grace and how you were caring for us. Now, it's interesting in this moment. Hang with me. Because, sure, Jesus calms the storm. But then, in the moment that they don't feel, quote, cared for, what does Jesus, how does Jesus respond? He rebukes them for having such little faith. Put in the form of a rhetorical question. Might even feel a little sarcastic. So again, the question is, I mean, this, or let, me, let me make another statement. That's like ungracious upon ungracious. You and I would be thinking the same thing. And here's a little preview of where we're going. If we think the same thing, no wonder our joy in the Lord oftentimes is lacking. You see, what happens with the disciples is in that moment, they, they slip into the ways of Adam. And they say presumptuously, don't you care for us? They're not asking a simple question. The way it's phrased there is an accusation. Don't you care for us? No wonder Jesus responds with a rebuke. Have you still no faith? But we, we do the same thing. While Jesus was pointing them to the truth, we do the same thing to ourselves and the people around us. It's got to be our gospel of grace. If I just had a Jesus who wouldn't sleep while the storm is raging... If I just had friends who would teach me or speak to me in a certain way while the storm was raging. And so we set up our standard of what grace is and we say to those around us, this is true grace. To be right with me, thou must meet my definition of grace. And we say to God, For me to be joyful and good and happy, you must meet my definition of grace. And we use our man-made laws to heap burdens on other Christians and to sift God's doings of their acceptableness in our 
lives. If you don't do this, God, we can't be right. Now certainly, right, none of us walk about doing that or saying that, but surely you all know what I'm talking about. And here's what happens functionally as well. We miss out on enjoying God's grace and glorifying Him for it because, like Adam and Eve, we want to be God and strong-arm God into our definition of grace. So how do we detect our own versions of these counterfeit gospels of grace in ourselves and in others. Some of you know I, I used to be a, a bank teller in my uh, glory years, getting to count hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, it was just depressing. That's what I mean by my glory years. It was depressing. I worked for a credit union that was started by some, uh, a GM Delphi workers union Many of the old-timers that had worked for GM for years would, would have their money direct deposited into the account, and they would, I mean, I, they were making like two or three grand a week, which is awesome, good for them. But they would come and remove that money every single week. They would come in on Fridays and literally just take it all out, sometimes into the negative. Uh, yeah, our bank, I, don't, I won't explain that, but anyways, they could take out an additional 500 bucks, there you go. It was nothing for me to count a hundred to $200,000 in cash out in one day. Nothing to hand out that much money. Um, how do you detect a fake dollar bill? How do you, how do you detect that? It's, yeah, it's not by studying the fake ones, at least primarily. It's not by studying and listening to those who are far from God. It's not by immersing ourselves in ourselves. It's not by swimming like Scrooge McDuck in a bunch of fake dollar bills. It's by becoming so familiar with the real thing. You touch it. You feel it. You smell it. You note that it moves across the fingertips in a certain way. You notice that it kind of folds and, and holds in a certain posture when you kind of bend it just a little bit. You notice that it even creases in a certain way. Or they wrinkle in a certain way that feels different when it goes across your fingertips. And then one day you're counting thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and a fake one rolls across your hand. And you say, wait a minute, hang on just a second. What was that? What just rolled across my finger? So when Peter says at the end of verse 12, this is the true grace of God, what Peter means is this, is I've been helping you become acquainted with the true grace of God, the real thing. I've been giving you thousands and thousands of dollars to run across your fingertips, to hold in your hands. This is particularly true of a writer in his style like Peter, where he's just writing in a cyclical fashion over and over and over again. He's just putting the same $100 bills through our fingers time after time after time again, saying this is the true grace of God. So what does Peter mean 
when he says this. This. What's the this refer to? It is this. Everything he has exhorted us to believe and do and declared to us. This, it's not just the summary statement of the gospel. It certainly includes that. It certainly has that as its climax. But the real thing is everything Peter has just said. And he's wanted us to roll that through our fingertips over and over and over again. So let me say to you, dear saints, we have got to become so acquainted, increasingly acquainted with God's grace that we can recognize the counterfeits when it rolls across our fingers. And so we can glorify God by enjoying every ounce of His true grace that does. See, the second thing I want you to see is that the entirety of life including present difficulties, is true grace for God's chosen. The entirety of life. Beginning this Sunday, some of our kids are beginning some copy work. And so they have been instructed to write down these phrases and, and, and such so that they can be talked about and enjoyed later. So kids, I want to encourage you to do that. Enjoy those writing these things down and and discussing them with your mom and dad. He says the entirety of life, including present difficulties, is true grace for God's chosen. That's what Peter is telling this people. The entirety of life for the chosen is sovereignly moved and bent to be a grace from Almighty God. The good is given as a grace. The bad obeys the Lord when he says, this shall be for the good of my child. Go read a, a, chap, a passage like Deuteronomy 8 when you get time this week. The first half of part of the first section, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, and you hear all this language about how God had disciplined them and so on and so forth. And then in the second part of this section... He promises to bring them into the land of milk and honey. Now most of us naturally will declare the first portion, the niceties of the promises of God as gracious, and miss the graciousness of His discipline. Of the times that aren't so nice, that aren't so pleasant. Peter is saying this powerful phrase, that the entirety of life All of it submits to God's sovereign hand as he bends it for the purpose of grace to his chosen people. No matter how difficult it is. No matter how difficult it is. If we are to familiarize ourselves with God's grace, let's take a few moments and kind of survey through First Peter for a moment. I'm just going to rattle these off. If you can't keep up, that's all right. I'm going to go quick. First one is this. Peter begins with the idea of election, the idea of choosing. 
In 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Again, what's, again what are we doing here? We're surveying if Peter says, this is God's grace, we're just going to take a survey of the highlights of what he says that is God's grace. So the first is beginning with election of those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Second, new birth. He says, blessed be, sorry, 1 verse 3. Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's Paul, Peter is saying this is grace, grace upon grace upon grace going on. The atoning death and resurrection of Jesus, second part of verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Third or fourth, an inheritance of God himself that is imperishable. Verse 4 of chapter 1, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter is saying, this is God's grace. This is how we define the this. Next, grieved by trials. Verse 6 of chapter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is God's grace, Peter is saying. This is the true grace of God being grieved by trials. Next, faith that is tested for its genuineness. 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. This testing of our faith is God's grace. Even when it hurts. Even when it's hard. Next, as faith refined for praise of His glory. Second part of verse 7, chapter 1. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's this faith that's being tested. It's being refined for the praise of His glory. Peter is saying that this is the true grace of God. Faith fruiting in holiness. Verse 15 of chapter 1. But he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The command here, church, don't miss it. The command to be holy is God's grace. Next, we're admonished to stop indulging sinful passions. Chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter is saying this command, this instruction, and the results is God's grace. It will be hard, but it is God's grace. Next, suffering unjustly. Chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. Do you hear that? Do you, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me back up, okay? For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You mean it's God's grace to suffer unjustly? The point is, this is the true grace of God, and these are the points that he's putting in his definition 
of the this. Next, suffering for righteousness' sake. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, what's he say? You will be blessed. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Listen, any blessing we get is what from God? Grace. Because we don't deserve to be blessed. It's His grace. So what's he saying? If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. You have been graced by God. It is God's grace to you. Church, we have got to forsake our proclivities to want to be God and define what grace is and become familiar with the real thing. So a couple questions of application here. These themes, again, repeat over and over again throughout Peter. And Peter is saying the whole package is the grace of God. We will be really weak in our walks of faith if our understanding of the grace of God is limited to just the summary of the gospel and especially if it's limited to the things that just feel nice that feel good that feel warm and fuzzy the things that relieve the pit in the in the bottom of our stomachs. Instead, you can look, you and I can look at suffering and saying, this is hard. But my God is able to turn it into grace for me. Who else in the world can say that except the people of God? Let me give you an example of where this has hit in my life even recently. As as many of you know, I've been friends with Pastor Russ for like 20 years, something like that, more than 20 years. I've been working full-time with him for 12 years, meaning lots of time in the back office, uh, lots of hours together. Russ has no idea where I'm going right now, for the record, but he, he'll remember now. Russ, if you don't know, this is very different than me uh, in many ways. Uh, you just have to spend a little bit of time with us, you'll recognize But I've had to confess to him over this past year that I've missed out on enjoying so much of God's grace through him because I've wanted to define God's grace through him my way. I had to look my way. This is what would be most gracious to me, and I've missed it. So let me ask these questions. Is this, the word this, how you would define grace? Is this how you define acceptable grace from God through others? Especially your leaders. Is this what grace looks like from you to others? Or does it just look like a projection of that which you would prefer? Listen, let me ask you this question, just practically here. Can you you see even just a glimpse right now, how having a more appropriately defined doctrine of grace would increase your joy in the Lord. How much more readily you will see it 
when it doesn't have to fit into the little round hole you've created for it. We'll come back to the phrase here, stand firm in just a moment. But for now, Peter, interestingly, says something else in the middle of this context. And now remember, there's dispersion, there's separation from each other, persecution, suffering. And all of this that he has said, including the gospel and all those deep truths, that this is the grace of God, he says to us this, that the family of God is crucial to knowing and enjoying God's grace. That the family of God is crucial. He's closing, he's wrapping things up. And he says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. So here's what he's saying, just briefly on the, the people here, that these other people greet you. These people that are not in your region, they greet you. Babylon is, is likely referring to the other saints in Rome. One commentator believed, and, and who knows, I, I mean, I don't know, but Mark is likely John Mark from Acts. Seems likely. And his point is there are other saints around the region that love you that want you to know that you are loved. And here's what he says. Give each other a kiss. Right? Give each other a kiss. A, a wet, sloppy kiss. You ever kissed a baby? You don't know how to kiss yet? Ah, you know, mouth open. There was an inch of slobber in between their lips and yours before you even touched. You get it. It says, give each other a kiss. Physical displays of affection are important. They're crucial. Indeed, physical interaction is crucial. Crucial. We've seen some of the negative effects of not having this through the past year, couple years. What, he's saying PDA is okay. It's not just okay. It's necessary. Now, as we define this, let's think for, for, you know, culturally, it was a ritual touch of the cheeks, okay? Not the lips. And it was given only from man to man or from woman to woman, not from man to woman. Just understanding culturally what was happening here. But lest we get caught up in the details and miss the principle, it, here's the principle. It's a command to stay together locally and to enjoy physical presence together. It's a command to enjoy physical presence together. The kiss demonstrated friendship, kinship, affection. So he's saying don't neglect physically displaying your affection for each other. What is Peter doing here? At the very least, it's a reminder of his emphasis on God's household. A reminder of his emphasis. A few, a few highlights from Peter here. He says that love is our primary disposition. If you look at a passage like 1 Peter 1.22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This should be our disposition. He says to live in harmony, verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. To live in harmony, to have unity of mind, to be tender-hearted. 
to drive towards unity. Again here though, unity of mind, not unity of feelings. Unity in thinking. That will drive the feelings and the unity thereof. But unity in thinking. You see, the family seeks truth because the truth about each other is important. Not myths that suit our passions. But unity of mind. Living in harmony. harmony. He says that love heals. A passage like 1 Peter 4, 8-9. through 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, you can go back and re-listen to this passage. It's not a, a call to forgive apart from repentance, but it's a call to let love do its healing work. It's forbearing work in God's people. So here's the deal. Whatever the custom, whatever the physical display of affection Custom, it could be handshakes, fist bumps, elbow bumps, side hugs, whatever it is. Here's Peter's point that the affection must be grounded in reality. That's why it's the kiss of love. Love, it must be grounded in true love. Or to put it in some more practical application here, in real community. It must be grounded in real community. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this book called Devoted to God's Church. He says real community is made up of people who are addicted to three things. The apostles' teaching, their fellow Christians, and the worship of God. He says this truly an addiction that frees us from all other addictions. But it's all three. It's all three. And if that's not the reality for you, then your displays or claims of affection are false. If the kiss, again, whatever that looks like, is not grounded in the reality of true community, then it is the kiss of Judas, the kiss of death. And because it pretends to be something that it's not, it brings destruction. It brings destruction. Real community doesn't demand grace to look my way. Instead, the flip side here is that when the kiss of love is grounded in true community, it brings life. And that's Peter's point. It brings life. It reinforces the true grace of God in the people of God. It helps him see it tangibly. To feel it tangibly. You see, the kiss of love, again, will be defined by the apostles' teaching, be committed to the good of their fellow Christians, and be the worship of God, be from the worship of God. In chapter 4, verse 10 through 11, Peter says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to do what? Serve one another as good stewards of God's varied what? Grace. Whoever speaks... 
as one who speaks oracles of God or truths, right? Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So real community, so the, the, uh, a physical display of affection must be rooted and grounded in real community. And just briefly, Peter says a lot more, but he says this love and real community will be earnest. That its love will cover over a multitude of sins. That it will show hospitality without grumbling. That it will serve one another. That it will speak truths to one another that come from God. And when this happens, can you imagine what happens to the body practically as it lives in all this grace that God sends us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of joy, in the midst of celebration, to have a family around you with hugs and tears and laughter all pointing us back to the truth that comes from our Father's mouth? How amazing of a grace is that for God's people? Such an appropriate song we sang right before this, Oh, Help Our Unbelief. Because one of the primary purposes that this family does is helps us stand on truth. Helps us know what this grace is. And when there's a false one we're striving after. Or when we're holding others or God hostage to our definitions of grace. It helps us stand firm in the truth and realize everything else will soon end. So the last thing I want you to see is stand firm in the truth. Everything else will soon end. Stand firm in the truth. Everything else will soon end. Only the truth remains. One day, everything else it will be burnt up. What are you standing in? What do you make decisions upon? What are your feelings based on? Verse 12. So about Silvanus, or by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And he says these just few very powerful words, stand firm in it. Have you ever had a th- thought, like, like so uh, the Lord, let's just take a very simple phrase, the Lord loves me even though I feel alone. You ever taken that, just take that phrase, or something similar. And you're struggling with that, right? I feel alone. I don't I feel despair. I, I just feel like there's nobody else around me that cares, so and so forth, right? I, I just feel alone. And, but I know the Lord loves me. How easy is it to stand on that? Right? One second, yes. Ha! <sighs> Standing. Five seconds later, wobbly knees. My mind has wandered into something else. I, if I could just have this person with me. If I could just have this phrase from this person. If I could just... If I could just... 
tells us to stand firm. This is no easy task. Later in 2 Peter, he's going to give this warning of false teachers. You go to 2 Peter chapter 2, you can read it later, verse 1 through 2. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The false prophets arose from among the people. Listen, it's easy for us just to relegate this to things like televangelists and so on. He literally means from among them. He says, and they work in secret, in the dark corners, bringing destructive heresies. And he says, many will follow their sensuality or the pursuit of pleasure as defined in that moment. So here's my point from this passage. Our natural proclivity is to forget the truth, to want to define it ourselves as we forget it. Life is going to be hard because of trials and suffering on top of that. Then on top of those two things, from among you will be people who try to lead you astray. It's no small task. It's, it's like being in a little teeny tiny paddle boat trying to, trying to row your way up the rapids. It's no small task, but we must hold fast to the truth. There's some effort here. There is some intentionality desperately needed here to stand firm. We must fight to keep one hand on the branch of truth of God's grace at all times. And we have to recognize that everything else is going to pull us away from this. Back to that Deuteronomy chapter 8 passage in verse 11. He says this, take care. Take care. He's saying this to the nation of Israel, to all of them. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I've commanded you today. Take care lest you forget and I'm not just, here's, what, here's my point, is it's not just, oops, I forgot. It's also everything is pulling it out. Everything is distracting us from. We must not forget the Lord. We must not forget this is the true grace of God. We must hold fast to all the truth. Yes, the gospel explicit at the core, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord and suffering, it's really tempting to stand on something other than the gospel of true grace. In suffering, it's easy to stand firm on that which makes us feel good or we think will make us feel better. It's easy to try and stand firm on what our friends say to us. I'm glad Job didn't stand on the words of his friends. I'm glad Jesus did not. They were all asleep. I wonder if Jesus felt cared for. In the good times, it's really tempting to stand firm on something other than the gospel of true grace, like our own accomplishments or our well-doing. But Peter is saying to them and to us, 
You have received the true grace of God. That's a miracle. Read it again. Go read it later today. When you forget tomorrow, pick up your Bible and read it again. This is the true grace of God. Not these lies I'm believing. All that God is doing in our lives, if you are His, it is nothing but a grace to you. I heard one lady say in a podcast I was listening to lately, then when suffering hits, we don't have to grumble. Instead, we can say, Lord, how might I steward this grace for your glory, for my good and the good of those around me? What a totally different outlook. Listen, ultimately, this life of defining grace ourselves is a burdensome, self-righteous pursuit, pretending to be God just like Adam and Eve. It's us fancying ourselves God, and there's nothing but death and destruction at the end of that journey. Nothing. There's no hope there. But the grace of God is highlighted in the good news of Jesus and God has, a, has chosen a people even though they're in exile. He has given them new birth to see and behold the glory of God. He has called them to new life in Christ through his death and resurrection. Suffering, indeed even suffering, is used to make our faith pure. And God has given himself to us as our inheritance. Church, listen, stop. I'm saying this to myself as well. Stop chasing all these other things we believe to be more gracious. Your job is not more gracious. Your feelings are not more gracious. Your friends are not more gracious. Having control, knowing all the details, won't be more gracious. Making the perfect decisions won't ultimately be more gracious. There will be no peace when we believe these things to be ultimate grace. Peter says at the end of 14, peace to all of you who are what? In Christ. Jesus Christ, who is himself this grace to which we have been called. Listen to me, church. Jesus is more gracious then however you might choose to fill in that blank. Jesus is the most gracious one. There is no other. For God's chosen people, he uses the entirety of life, every passing moment, as a means of grace to refine our faith in Jesus Christ. How gracious is that? We don't deserve that. He uses uncertainty to make certain the faith of his people, to make it genuine and pure, and to prepare it for the day Jesus comes back. So that one day, one day, God's glory would outshine the sun through his people. Let's pray. Father.
Help us to stop chasing our man-made definitions of grace. Help us to forsake those. Help us to name them. Help us to dare to name them with specificity that our pursuit of these these man-made or our own defining of grace is nothing more than a pursuit of self-righteousness and will leave us in destruction and empty. But you, full of grace, full of grace immeasurably, have bestowed it upon your people. This grace bought and paid for by the price of the blood of your son, Jesus. A price that we should have paid and should have paid for all of eternity was paid on his back by his blood. And those and that blessed blood now runs through our veins, receiving everything you have for us as grace. Even the uncertain things. So, Father, please give us the eyes to see. Give us the, the hearts to believe, to treasure that Jesus is the most gracious one. Nothing else can fill that spot. Father, I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.